listening to the Bible 126 show. Father, we just praise you for the privilege of gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ. We ask your very special blessing upon this evening. We just ask you to pour out your spirit that we might behold Jesus Christ, that we might learn more of you, that we might be more responsive to your word and your will. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many here are going through trials? Uh, I'm a risk taker. We've had our ups and downs, but as you can probably gather, we're really going through it. And uh, so I finally realized that among other things the Lord's trying to get me to do, and there's a, lot of, there's a long list of those, I'm sure, uh, I thought maybe this is the right, I'm the right frame of mind to, uh, to uh, tackle a book. Uh, you know, we've, we've gone through about almost uh, 35 of the books of the Bible here as a group um, over these, what, 15, 18 years, whatever, um, verse by verse, you know, chapter at night, typically, typical phase. We've hit most of the big ones, so actually we are, are we're probably, I imagine, I haven't done arithmetic, but I imagine we're 70 or 80% through, 70 or 80% through. Um, but Job is one of the interesting books that uh, we're now going to take, uh, take on, and um, as I started to do the research on the book of Job, I tell you, um, got a lot of surprises. It's not at all what I thought it was. Uh, you know, I've been told all my life that the book of Job is all about, um, you know, why do the innocent suffer, right? How many of you thought the book of Job was that why do the innocent suffer? Oh, my hand's up. I thought so too. And it is. It is and it isn't. What I mean by that is it's interesting because Job's put through some trials and there's a lot of dialogue from his well-meaning friends about all that that ends up somewhat sort of in a stalemate and then God answers for Job near the end doesn't even deal with the issue at least not the issue we thought he's dealing with so we discover that the issues in Job are far deeper than the issue of Job getting you know beat up a little bit because of this uh, issue between uh, God and Satan we'll get into that this evening uh, far, it's, it's far deeper than that first of all what in, intrigued me wasn't the reason I got into the book, but I was very heartwarmed to discover that there is more scientific passages in the book of Job than probably any other book of the Bible. There's more comments about the creation in the book of Job than there are in the book of Genesis. And so it's kind of interesting. Then you also do some research. You discover there's these three friends. There's a fourth friend that shows up. Not a friend, just a guy shows up, a young man by the name of Elihu. You wouldn't believe the diversity of opinions about what Elihu is all about. And uh, uh, that's going to be an interesting mystery to unravel. So we're in the book of Job. Now, the book of Job uh, happens to be the oldest book in the Bible, by most reckoning. It's the oldest book of the Bible. Think about that. A couple of issues, though. So you, the book of Job is um, regarded by the experts as probably the greatest piece of literature known in the mind of man, bar none. I don't mean just the Bible. I mean total. Victor Hugo. Uh, uh, called it the greatest pe- masterpiece of the human mind. Now, this is not from a. This is just as, you know as a as a piece of literature. It's a very complex book. It is. It opens and closes with prose, with narrative. But most of it, the bulk of it, in between those two, the opening and closing, is in poetry. And Hebrew poetry is really complicated. And I could have uh, developed all kinds of notes to bore you all evening about it, but. Uh, the net of it all is that Hebrew poetry is, is different than our poetry. This particular poetry, and Job does have meter and such, the things that you and I normally think of poetry, but Hebrew poetry primarily involves the juxtaposition of ideas. 
You see that in the book of Proverbs particularly, where the thing will be expressed sort of twice, two different ways, not quite the same. And that's, that is a, an art form that's very uniquely Hebrew, and, and uh, all through the Bible, Job is one of the highest examples of it. But uh, it's in the form of an epic poem. Some scholars believe it may have been even put together so it could be dramatized by actors in a classic tradition. It certainly structurally lends itself to that. Um, it might have been uh, uh, presented as a drama with the opening and closing being like program notes, in a sense. Now, whether it was or not uh, isn't that important, uh, just to give you a flavor of what we're getting into here. But I don't want you to misunderstand that some of these comments that we'll talk about style and the rest. There's a couple of points. There are a lot of different views, and I've spent a lot of time digging into this. I'm, I think the evidence is very clear. First of all, that Job was a real person. This isn't some kind of epic drama that's where it's a parable or something. Job was a real person. He's mentioned by Ezekiel, and he's classed along with Noah and Daniel by Ezekiel. That's in chapter 14 and verses 14 and verse 20, for those of you who want to check that out. Um, the epistle of James makes reference to Job, and we will look at that before the evening's over, because James makes some interesting remarks there that we'll want to take a look at. But anyway, so he's a real person. As elegant as the language is and as crafted as it is, um, it's uh, um, clearly also written, I believe, by a single author. There's many uh, uh, would-be experts that try to say it was a thing, something that evolved through years. I don't believe it at all. It's too inter there's too much interdependence. It's clearly a single author. Now, some other things that will give you some flavor for the book, as before we get into it, first of all is the vocabulary. There are over a, at least 110 words in the book of Job that are not found anywhere else in the Old Testament. They've got five different words for lions in uh, chapter 4. There's six different words for traps. There's six different words for darkness. In other words, behind their English translation, there's a richness of vocabulary that's amazing. The book includes the names of constellations. Now, as I run through this, get a feeling for the scope of the writer. Names of constellations, names of metals, precious stones. Clearly, there's familiarity with the anatomy of great beasts. There was technical language of law courts, occupations of mining and hunting. There's references to insects, reptiles, birds, beasts, weapons, and military strategies, musical instruments, means of travel, geography, whirlwinds, dew, dawn, darkness, clouds, rain. It just, the, the, the range of, of knowledge of the writer is amazing. It's very articulate, very, very uh, full piece of work. The languages include not just Hebrew, which is written in the courses, but Akkadian, Arabic, Aramaic, Sumerian, and Ugaritic, it's, uh, Ugaritic I should say, uh, are uh, a lot of the ancient languages show up in, in, the, in the material. The real issue you and I would like to get a feeling for, because it would help us understand the book, is when was it written, roughly? The time. Lots of debates about this. But I'm going to take the position and try to uh, establish the position that it was written at least at the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, maybe Isaac, long before Moses. Now, there's a number of reasons for this. Uh, first of all, the length of Job's life is a tip-off. Assuming he was about 60, and that's an inference, he's at least, you know, he had fully grown kids and so forth, so assuming he's about 60 at the time of this, he lives 140 years after the trials we're going to read about. So he's about 200 years old, when he dies, that compares with Terah, that's Abraham's father, who was about 205. 
Abraham lived to be about 175, Isaac 180, Jacob 147, Joseph 110. It gets shorter. You know, those, those long longevities are tapering off. So with Job being about 200, that's one way to get a feeling for when he uh, lived. One interesting observation that comes out of this is that his life may over, have overlapped Noah and Shem. Because Noah, see, if you, rec- if you assume there's no gaps in the genealogies, there's arguments about that. But if, the, if that's true, then, then Abraham lit, was born only 292 years after the flood. Okay? So if, indeed, Job's in about that era, it overlapped. Uh, see, you see, um, Noah lived 350 years after the flood. See, so Noah overlapped Abraham. That's a shock to many people. And Shem uh, lived 502 years after the flood. So these guys could have been around at the time that Job was written. There's something very interesting about Job is that while all the controversies in Job, there's never any mention of any other gods. You know, any other idols or other gods. It's all, you know, uh, a dialogue having to do with the living God. It isn't tangled up with uh, some of these other ideas that come later. Uh, A couple of other indicators of time. Wealth is reckoned in livestock in several places, as it was in the days of Abraham. And there's references in Genesis 12 and 13 and so forth, and Jacob 30 and 32. That's a very typical way to measure wealth, was was livestock. And that happens here. The Sabians and the Chaldeans will show up here in chapter 1. They were nomads at the time of Job, and we know that they they, uh, were not in later years. So that's another hint of the timing. The other thing we'll discover, Job was the priest of his family. He offers sacrifice for his children. What's interesting about that is there's no, there are none of the Mosaic institutions. See, he's a, he's, a, he's a priest of his own family. There's no national priesthood of any kind alluded to. Another, some technical stuff, the Hebrew word for piece of money in chapter 42 is used elsewhere only in the Bible twice, but that's in Genesis 33 and Joshua 24, both in reference to Jacob. So there's a linguistic hint of timing. The musical instruments that are referred to, the timbrel and the harp and the lyre, or the harp or lyre and the flute, are, all, are mentioned in the same, same terms, and they're mentioned in Genesis 4 and Genesis 31 the same way they are in Job. So again, that tends to suggest a very early date. A couple of other things, Job's daughters are heirs to their estate, which of course did not happen under the laws of Moses. And uh, in Numbers 27, 8, for those who want to chase that down. Uh, there are also a lot of similar literary works in Mesopotamia at that time that seem to be dated about that time, that there are stylistic references that su- su- uh, suggest the early date. But the most interesting for you and I is there's no reference to the Mosaic institutions. Priesthood, law, tabernacle, you know, special religious days, none of that shows up in the book of Job. So it, it's clearly before Moses. The name Shaddai for, the, for God is used 31 times in Job, only 17 times in the rest of the Old Testament. And it's a name familiar to the patriarchs, which shows up in Genesis 17 and Exodus 6 and so on. The other thing it's a, that we'll spend not a lot of time on, but get a feeling for, is the personal and place names. Uh, then these all are associated with the patriarchal period, the Abraham-Isaac type period. Uh, Sheba, who was a, it, there's a, Sheba will show up, and that's a grand, that was a grandson of Abraham. And uh, from Sheba, Genesis 25, and, and shows up. Tema, which is another grandson of Abraham, and uh, Tima is also a location in northern Arabia. Uh, Eliphaz, one of the key guys in there, was a son of Esau. And so that may be, uh, there's, also, there's a lot of links to Edom and to the east in the book of Job. There's the place called Uz, and uh, Uz was also a nephew of Abraham, and, where, and Uz was where, of course, Job lived. 
The name Job itself is a very common West Semitic name, about 2000 B.C. Earliest usage is in a list of kings in the upper Euphrates River, about uh, 2000 B.C. And um, it's also the name, about 1900 B.C., of a prince in the Egyptian execration text. Execration text. Uh, other occurrences are found in the Amarna letters and in some Ugaritic texts. So I don't know what you do with all that information. The net of it is it's pretty old stuff. Now, if you structure the book, there's an introduction. Then there's Satan's assault, and we'll deal with that tonight. Then these three friends show up to comfort Job. Now, with friends like this, you don't need enemies. Um, although their arguments, they're not straw men. Their arguments will be same you and I would advance. You'll find our own theories and philosophies buried in their arguments. Now, um, and a bulk of the book, of course, are these dialogues. But then this fourth guy shows up, a guy by the name of Elihu. And uh, uh, that's uh, the diversity of opinion about what that's all about is very interesting, and we'll, we'll tackle that when we get there in chapters. In fact, he has chapters 32 through 37. He's got six chapters just for Elihu, and no one knows who he is or what's that all about. So we'll tackle that. Then, of course, uh, Jehovah asks, answers for Job, and that's perhaps, to me, the one of the most fascinating passages in the Bible uh, because it, God raises a lot of interesting issues. There are at least 15 scientific advances, discoveries anticipated in the book of Job. And we'll hit those as we go. Then uh, after Elihu, it's, see, it was Job and his friends, then, and then Jehovah and Job. Then the three friends had arrived. Now the three friends depart. Then there's Satan's defeat. Job's blessed double. And then there's a conclusion. That's roughly the structure of the book. Um, we're going to encounter all kinds of names of God. And uh, you and I missed that in the English. And I won't belabor it other than to highlight some of the aspects here. We know Elohim as the God, the creator. In the beginning, God created Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Elohim, the I am, means it's a plural noun, always used with a singular verb, so we've got a hint of the Trinity behind it. God is the creator carrying out his will. God standing in relation of the creator to his creations is what Elohim suggests. El is also a name of God. That's God the omnipotent, showing forth the power carrying out his work. Eloah, is a uh, name, that's the God to be worshipped and reverenced, the living God, in contrast to idols and false gods. Adonai is the God as the ruler of the earth, in relation to the whole earth, not just in relation to his covenant people. Adonai. Jehovah is the eternal God who is and who, who was and who is and who is to come. He's the self-existent God. He's the God who stands in covenant relationship with his own people. Each one of these names of obviously the same God, don't misunderstand me, but each one emphasizes a, a particular relationship. One of the most co uh, common names in the book of Job for God is El Shaddai. God, uh, sometimes called God the Almighty, but that's misleading. It's really God the All-Bountiful. All it's the giver of every good gift, the fountain of divine help. It's the supplier of all human need, not just power, but resources. See the difference? El Shaddai. And uh, I could go on about names of God, but let's keep, let's keep moving here. The real challenge you and I are going to have in studying the book of Job is what's the real lesson? What's it all about? And I, it, it's been suggested it's the oldest lesson in the world. It's the most important lesson you and I have to learn. If we don't learn this lesson, nothing else we know matters. And yet if we learn this lesson, it doesn't matter what else you know. And that's far more than just suffering. It's not just how you get through suffering. 
Um, in Genesis chapter 3, God said to Adam, where art thou? Remember? That's the question that we're going to ask ourselves as we go through the book of Job. The, the book of Job, I'm going to suggest to you further, the book of Job is a lesson that I can't teach you. It's a lesson that only God can. And uh, God himself will be the teacher of the lesson in Job, not necessarily in this class, but in your life. And that's what you want to be uh, tuned up to. You might uh, just, just take a look at what James said about the book of Job. And we'll turn to James 5. Verse 11. James says, Behold, we count them happy who endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. What Job is all about, I believe, is what James calls the end of the Lord. His point, his climax, his ultimate issue. And um, that's we're going to discover, see, if, if it's just suffering, if the, if the point of Job is just, gee, why do the innocent suffer? And it certainly deals with that. But if that's the whole point, it's interesting. That question's never answered. Job is uh, dealt a pretty tough deck, and he doesn't sin through it. His three friends who love him, they're very sincere, but they're misguided. They advance all kinds of arguments, and there's lots of dialogue. It constitutes the bulk of Job. And it's a stalemate. And at the end, finally, God answers for Job. But when we study his answer, it's got little to do with suffering. It's a whole different set of declarations. And that should give us a clue that what Job is about is far more than, uh, you know, look at the hand I got, you know. Um, I can ask you a few questions. You remember the, uh, the lost son and the prodigal son? There's a mighty famine that caused him to come home, right? What was the result of that? That was in Luke 15. For those of you who want to look at it, look at it later. What did, the, what did the son finally do? He confessed, I have sinned. There's another famine for Joseph's brethren, remember? And, and Genesis 44, they end up acknowledging we are verily guilty. What did Nathan's parable do for David? Remember Bathsheba? Exactly right. He called David and said, I have sinned against the Lord. Isaiah had a vision of the throne of God in chapter 6. And what was his response to that? I am undone. I'm unclean. Isaiah's response to the vision of God. Same thing with Daniel in chapter 10. Where Daniel says, my comeliness has turned into corruption. These guys are undone when confronted with the living God. And uh, remember Peter in Luke 5, they're fishing, don't catch anything. Put your net on the other side, they catch more than they can handle. What was Peter's reaction? One of those times he has a tremendous insight. He says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. You see, the, 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 the gap between uh, man and the living God. Interesting. And we're going to, in effect, see some of that as God answers for Job, ultimately, in the climax of the book. Well, enough of this prattle. Um, I always sort of feel we have to do some introduction here as we get started, but uh, I'll postpone some of the other observations as we go. Let's turn to Job. Turn to the Psalms, turn left. Huh? Okay. 
Job chapter 1, verse 1, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. That's quite a mouthful. Uz, by the way, the son of Aram, founder of Arameans, he was a son of Shem and the son of Noah. So we go Noah, Shem, Aram, and Uz. So it's a, that's a person's name, but the presumption is obviously that that somehow is where he settled and gave the, the place the name. Uz was a land of the kings in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah 25. It uh, was either a possession or a neighbor of Edom, we infer from Lamentations 4. Some scholars believe that Uz was in the fertile Bashan, south of Damascus. Others that Uz was in Edom, southeast of the Dead Sea. And other scholars, east of Edom, in northern Arabia. And for lots of reasons, that seems to be a more likely location because of other things that go on. This last view is supported by the fact that Job did live near the desert, but the land was very, very fertile for agriculture and livestock, as you'll see. There's also customs, vocabulary, and other geographical references that relate to northern Arabia all the way we go through. So that's, that's at least the leaning I have so far. Um, Job was obviously one of the more prominent citizens of the region. You notice, by the way, I don't want you to confuse when it says he was perfect. That does not mean he was sinless. He was blameless. He was blameless because he dealt, as God had instructed him, with his sin. So blameless doesn't mean sinless. He knew how to handle his sin. What the word there really means, complete or well-balanced. He, well, he feared God. He was a well-balanced man. So Job's a pretty neat guy, and we're just, beginning, we're just getting into it. Verse 2, And there was born unto him seven sons and three daughters. You girls would probably say that's an equal number of each, huh? Okay. Verse 3. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. By the way, the, the, the phrase men of the East is often identified with Kedar. With the Nor Again, it's a reference in the language to the northern portion of Arabia to some. Jeremiah 49.28 has similar connections. In any case, for our purposes, Job is very, very prosperous. And we need to understand that riches are not necessarily evil. Abraham, in his day, was probably the richest man in the, in the, in the region. And uh, so on. Verse 4. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, it says his day. See, what, what some people believe, there's no basis for this other than just an inference, that these are birthdays, that each time they had a birthday, they would feast. It may have been more frequent than that. But they, they clearly, as a family, feasted together. And there's a whole family togetherness thing that, uh, would, uh, would, uh, that, uh, that surfaces here. Family man. Verse 5, And it was so, when the days of their t feasting were gone about, the Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. It's interesting that Job offers sacrifices. There's no national priesthood. He's the high priest. So whatever the relationship is there, he, he assumes the role here of the, of the priest of the family. He doesn't offer sin offerings. The individuals have to do that for themselves on a repentant basis. But he can offer burnt offerings, which is... a you know, a, a, a uh, involves a total dedication to God, a recognition of God's rightful sovereignty over man. That's the emphasis here. 
Job also knew that our greatest spiritual stress is when things are going well. That may surprise you, because Job is going to have some real tough times, and that's where the stress is. But what you and I should be alerted to, that uh, the biggest spiritual stress can be a challenge, maybe, when you are doing well. And um, I can't offer much. I've failed at both ends. You know, I've been very wealthy, and I've been also in deep trouble, and I've blown it in both ends. So I'm not sure which one's easier. I found it pretty easy to screw up at both ends. So praise God. Um, okay, so Job is a godly man, a great landowner, and a good father. Now we get to verse 6, and boy, do we get some insights here. One of the major values of the book of Job to you and I. See, bear in mind, uh, much of what Job is going through is before. He, he, he couldn't avail himself of the refuge of Jesus Christ as you and I can. So some of the, the, the things that Job endured, uh, we might approach a little differently, but that's another study. The point is, though, we certainly can learn a great deal from verse 6 on about some other things. We're going to have the benefit of some insights that Job did not have. What's amazing is how Job behaved in the absence of the visibility that you and I have, of what's really going on behind the scenes. So we're going to have a scene shift in verse 6. We're going to shift to what Paul calls in Ephesians into the heavenlies. We're off the earth now. Something else is going on here. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now the sons of God here, the Bar Elohim, is a term, Old Testament term for angels. So don't let that throw you. It's uh, very clearly angels, and you'll see it. And among them, here is this turkey. Here is Satan. Satan has rebelled. He is, but he apparently has access. That access continues. There will be a day when he no longer has access to heaven. He will be confined to the earth, and he knows as he has but a little time. And there are major prophetic passages that are, 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 are that focus on the fact that Satan will be cast to the earth and no longer have this access, but right now he does. That's what the word Satan means, is our adversary. It means slanderer or accuser. And this is one of the places we get that, is he's, that's exactly what he's doing there. We're gonna, if you could get into the Hebrew language, you'd notice that it's insolent. There isn't a lot of deference to God. And yet, it's also clear, we'll see that he can't sneeze without permission. Because uh, you'll see that one of the major things to learn is that anything that Satan does, he has limitations that God sets. And he keeps coming back to get the rules changed. Okay? And it's important, while on the one hand, we should not take Satan lightly. On the other hand, we should not uh, uh, put him at it as an equal to, uh, with God. And I want to get into some of that issue because that's one of the dangers in today's society. I'll come back to that. Um, it might be kind of useful to turn to Second Kings 6. This is just sort of a perspective builder kind of thing. Second Kings chapter 6 deals with a small incident with a guy by the name of Elisha. Elisha is an interesting guy because when Elijah left, Elijah wanted a double portion of the power of Elijah, and he got it. Elijah did eight miracles in the Old Testament. How many did Elisha do? Sixteen. Isn't that interesting? But there's one case here where 
the, the uh, uh, Syrians are against them. They're after Elijah, Elisha because he keeps tipping off Syrians' enemies. And uh, uh, it turns out that the, you know, the, the, the king thinks he's some kind of a spy. He says, they're not a spy. Elisha just knows everything that you talk about in your bedchamber. And so they're after Elisha. And so they send, in verse 14 of chapter 6, they send their horses and chariots and a great host. They came by night, and they compassed around the city where Elisha and his servant were. And in verse 15, when the servant of the man of God had risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. His servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? In other words, he looked out, and he saw that overnight, here is an army, you know, with tanks and choppers and bazookas. And, you know, okay. and uh, verse 16, he answered and said, Elisha said, Fear not, for they who are with us are more than they who are with them. And what's not recorded here, the servant says, oh, yeah? <laughs> 17, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to have, have uh, you know, uh, George Lucas sort of put that in the special effect? It wouldn't be hard, would it? Anyway, it goes on. But here's, again, one of the, there's, many, there's other places. Uh, Daniel 10. Remember Daniel 10. He prays for 21 days, and the angel comes and gives him uh, special visions. In fact, chapters uh, 10, 11, and 12 are all big. It's a big uh, revelation to him. But the uh, angel points out, I'm sorry, I, I was sent to you three weeks ago, but I was withheld by the, the prince of the power of Persia. Now, that the king of Persia. That didn't stop an angel. But... Uh, there was apparently a demonic force behind that government, and uh, he couldn't get through until uh, Michael came and helped him. And he got through, and he gave Daniel a vision. He said, by the way, i got to go now because the prince of the power of Greece has got to be dealt with. The Greek empire came, what, 200 years later? So we get, uh, in Daniel 10, we get a spooky insight that there are demonic or angelic uh, forces at war behind the scenes you and I are unaware of. Now, what happens here in Job, verse 6, we're going to switch into that domain. We're moving out of the physical domain that you and I know, and we're going into a whole different domain, the domain of the heavenlies, as Paul called it in Ephesians. The Revelation 4, Ephesians, I mean, Isaiah 6, there's a lot of passages that deal with this. Now, these Baruch Elohim are, are, are sons of God. They're angels. Now, remember, as powerful as angels are, and they are powerful, one angel after dinner knocked off 185,000 Syrians. Just, you know, you don't mess with angels. Say, uh, angels are created beings, though. They are created beings. Now, that leads to something that we want to put down in our thinking. There is a concept of good and evil called dualism. We see it surface in literature a lot, particularly, for example, in the Star Wars trilogy. The force, the dark side of the, there's a good side, a bad side of the force. That idea, that, that, now it's fun in literature, that's fine, but that idea, is um, occultic. That idea is a subtle way to deny the power of God. Um, there's been a, a book on demonology called Between Christ and Satan. It's not a bad book except for the title. It's a misleading title. It implies that Satan and Christ are equals at war. Nonsense. Christ created Satan. You see the difference. And uh, it's very important for us to understand how powerful and malevolent the, uh, Satan and his hosts are on the one hand, but also recognize that the victory is certain 
and in the hands of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who created them in the first place. Okay. Now, um, as we study the book of Job, we will get closer to its main message if we recognize the issue isn't Job and his suffering. The issue is the relationship between God and Satan. If you focus on that. Satan can't do anything without God's permission. And it's God's vindication that's at issue. If Job is fearing God because of what he can get out of it, Satan's right. His cynical philosophy that he espouses here shortly is correct. Fortunately, Job, how he knew this, how he did this, I have no idea, but he comes through pretty doggone well. We would do amazingly to do one-tenth of what Job did. His, 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 his faith and his commitment to the Lord independent of what God did to him. It wasn't conditional. And uh, we'll, we got we, as we study Job, we've got to get at some of those issues. And that's because that's, it's really, uh, that, that's a big part, the relationship of God, Satan to God. And it's not dualism. All forces are under God's command. There are no surprises. Now, what that leads to then is, not surprisingly, that Job, more than any other book of the Bible, will give us a glimpse of the majesty and the grandeur of God, his greatness. That's really what it's about. And that makes it even more exciting than I thought when we first started this thing. Verse 7. So Satan has access. and the, Now notice, the Lord is the one that puts the challenge down, not Satan. The Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Now, Satan has access to heaven, but where does he spend his time? Not only in the earth. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it's, uh, Peter tells us, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about for what purpose? Seeking whom he may devour. I don't know why, it reminds me of that story of the two hikers uh, going up the hill, and um, as they're hiking up the hill, way up in the brush looms a large bear. And immediately one of the hikers drops his pack, gets out his running shoes, and starts lacing him up. And his buddy says, what are you doing? You can't run, outrun that bear, can you? He says, no, I just have to outrun you. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that as a strategy with a roaring lion, but uh, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27 says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Your anger gives him an opportunity to work. That's what Paul is trying to get across. You lose your temper? You're upset? Your anger? Satan's opportunity. Satan's opportunity. Anyway, so... Satan has access to heaven. The Lord says, hey, where have you been? He's looking around the earth. Makes you wonder if that's the only location he works, but that's okay. Lots of evidence that the, you know, before the fall, that may have been a very special domain of Satan. So part of his displacement by us is part of his resentment. But, but that's inference. Verse 8. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? 
that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and that sheweth evil. By the way, there's a lot here. First of all, the challenge is by God, not Satan. Important to get that across. We often think he's Satan's challenging God about Job. No, God started it. He put it there as an example. Put him of Job there as an example. But something else you need to grab so you don't get misled. Right up here, up front, we've told you once, we're going to tell you again, Job was upright. His three friends are going to work him over. But who authenticated Job's righteousness? Verse 8, the Lord himself. Lord knows, doesn't he? Right? He says, there is none like him. Says it all, doesn't it? None like him in the earth. A perfect and upright man, one that feareth God, that sheweth evil. So God endorses Job. Now, Job's report card is a key to the book. Uh, you lose the whole point uh, if the righteousness of Job is not taken as genuine because his friends are going to attack it. Friends are going to attack it. And, uh, and see, the flip side of this is the kinds of arguments you'll hear is, gee, don't you reap what you sow? That's Galatians 6, 7, right? Psalm 34, 11, 22, 1 Peter 3, 10. You can build a case that you reap what you sow. Well, Job, look what you're reaping. Boy, you must have sowed something. That's the flavor of what's going to be coming here. But we need to remember what Job somehow knew is that where justice ends, love begins. See? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's where Job's coming from. Boy, I wish I could tell you I was there. I'm trying. But it's uh, that's tough stuff. Now, Job's friends were in error on this point. But what makes this collision of minds uh, so dramatic is the soundness of their views of these three friends, and yet it's wrong. These are not straw men that uh, have been set up in these dialogues that you're going to see. But it's interesting, anyway, the main point I want to make here is that it's God that challenges Satan, not the other way around. Verse 9. So God you know, chose Job up, holds Job up as an example. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? You know, I mean, come on, you're paying him. You know, that's sort of the flavor of it. See, Satan's premise is that all of us are motivated only by self-interest. That's his accusation. And this is the ultimate question for all of us, you and I. Do we reflect Satan's cynical philosophy? Is our worship a coin that, that, uh, that buys heavenly reward? Is that what we're after? Is piety a contract, a transaction? We're going to talk about real worship versus thanksgiving. What's the difference between worship and thanksgiving? Worship is adoration, independent of, where, of what's happening. Now, Satan's attack on Job is an attack on the integrity of God. See, Job isn't the only issue here. God is the issue. Is he rigging the rules? Is he buying your love? That's Satan's accusation. Now, God is going to use Job to silence Satan. He's also going to deepen Job's spiritual insight and hopefully yours and mine as we go. You guys may relate to this more than the girls will, but metal has no strength until it's been tempered in the fire. Hmm? That's also true of your faith.
Some lessons only the Lord can teach us directly. Anyway, verse 10. By the way, one other thing I missed that I think is interesting and back in verse 8 when uh, 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 this idea of uh, Satan have you considered my servant Job the word consider is a military term it's a military term it's, it's to scrutinize in anticipation of attacking it it's to reconnoiter in effect so it's, uh, fits, it fits the situation very well okay verse 10 Satan continues, Hast thou not made a hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. That's where we get this expression, you put a hedge about us. Where do we get that? From, the, from verse 10 in first chapter of Job. Boy, do we like to have a hedge about us. And, uh, but here's the point. Nothing can happen to Job without God's permission. Nothing can happen to you without God's permission. We often say all our troubles are father-filtered. All our troubles are father-filtered. If we really understand that, boy, that makes them easier to bear for lots of reasons. When we worry or we, when we really sweat them, it's a denial in our hearts. And we're all do it. Don't let me you know, <laughs> give you the wrong impression. But as, 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 we, as we fear and tremble and we're nervous, that's a, that's a lack of faith. That's why in Revelation 21a it talks about all those that are in bad shape. All the murderers and whoremongers and fornicators, the whole list. Who's at the head of the list? The fearful and the unbelieving. Fear, being fearful is a sin. Not in the sense of recognizing danger, not that kind of thing, but, but fear in the sense of not trusting God to see you through it. Strange that that'd be a sin, but it is. Same sin, it's a, it's a close cousin of the murmuring that got Israel in all the trouble in the book of Numbers. Okay, verse 11. Satan goes on and says, But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. See Satan's premise. See, you're buying his love, God. Take that stuff away and see where you stand. That's his challenge. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. See, God just lowered the hedge. Look, all that he has, not himself, not his person, but everything he has, his possessions, his flocks, his children, they're yours, Satan. Do what you will. Satan doesn't waste any time. And we get a real insight into the man. He would have us all perish if he could. The only reason he doesn't do all of this to us is because God won't let him. He set limits. Specific limits are set by God. You can do this, but not that. You'll notice that Satan never challenges those rules. He goes back to try to get the rules changed. But he honors. He somehow cannot cross the line that God sets. Satan, with all his rebelliousness, has limitations. Important lesson here. God is totally in control, and um, there's no suggestion in this book that Satan violates the limitations God has set. He exploits them to the edge, but not beyond. I suppose that's what we mean when we say sliding down the razor blade of life, right? 
Words are powerful, aren't they? Verse 13. Now we shift back down to the earth, huh? There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, right? And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. Only I am escaped to tell alone to tell thee. So we have these uh, oxen and the asses were there and these marauders, these brigands, the Sabaeans in this case. Um, Sabaeans uh, from a region of Sheba, probably southwest Arabia, or possibly a town called Sheba near Dedan in upper Arabia. But either way, it implies that general region. Mentioned Genesis 10, 7, and uh, 25, 3, for those of you who want to chase that down. But Anyway, the main point is that these marauders um, slaughtered the servants and took the livestock. Now, he's this, the only one that escaped was the messenger. And he apparently is just out of breath when, in verse 16, says, While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them. Only I am escaped alone to tell thee. Setting a trend here. Isn't it? <laughs> By the way, I don't know what kind of fire this was. Usually it's lightning. Maybe it's a bolide that is a meteor that explodes. Uh, who knows? But it must have been some kind of storm because there's 7,000 sheep involved. That's a storm. Now, obviously, from the point of view of the narrative, the mechanics here aren't important, but uh, the main point is that we don't re- treat them as allegorical. They're real. Verse 17, While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out... Uh, three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Camels were the most prized of all the animals in that part of the world. Chaldeans were fierce marauding inhabitants of Mesopotamia. This is before they settled. Possibly from the north in contrast to the civilians which came from the south. But again, that's just background. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped to tell thee. Satan's control over natural forces. Remember Jesus when he had the storm on the Sea of Galilee? He rebuked the wind and the waves. Could be a figure of speech. I don't think so. He's not rebuking the wind and the waves. He's rebuking the force behind them. Who is causing that storm? Your guess is as good as mine. Verse 20. Now, if you were Job, you had four messengers here in a space of an hour or whatever with these kinds of tidings, what would you do? I know what I would do, and I ain't going to tell you. Job arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell down on the ground and worshipped. Can you fall down and worship in that kind of adversity? By the way, shaving the head was part of mourning rituals of Mesopotamian Canaan in the early days. and That's why it was prohibited under the law of Moses, because it was associated with the ritual. This is obviously, again, well before the law of Moses. Interesting. The next time you get bad news, read this chapter. The next time you get a real setback, read this chapter. 
The malignancy of Satan went to the very limit as quickly as he could. It tells you a lot about where he's coming from. Now, this is, this is taking us into far deeper significance of the book of Job. Deeper reasons for God's permission of the tragedy than the ones that we usually think of. That's what we're going to be exploring as we go here. We're going to be dealing with a revelation of the mercy and compassion of God. And it's interesting, here, Job has no complaints. He worships God, and he says, verse 21, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What's Job saying? I recognize the sovereignty of God to do with me as he will. No complaint. He didn't charge God with wrong. He didn't curse the desert brigands. He didn't get, express frustration with his own servants not guarding them well. You can make a list. C.S. Lewis, as in my reading, I got one thing. C.S. Lewis had an interesting crack. He says, why should the righteous suffer? Why not? They're the only ones that can handle it. Isn't that great? Now, Job's amazing response here proves that Satan was wrong. Job essentially says, I recognize God's sovereign right to do with me as he will, and that shows that Satan was wrong. There's not a self-interest drive on the part of Job's relationship with his father, with the living God. Man can be godly apart from material gain. That's the issue. By the way, this mother's womb happens to be a phrase, a poetic way of referring to the earth, incidentally. It's not a big deal, but it's passing. The whole idea of dust from the ground and so forth. You know, Genesis 2 and 3 and so on. And that will come up some more later. Verse 22, in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Boy, that's what you and I are going to try to avoid in our lives, is not to charge God foolishly. Part of that's knowledge, part of that's faith. A lot of both. Job passed the test, God was vindicated. And the question you have to think about on your way home tonight is, how would you have done? How would you have done? Boy, that's what it's really all about. Now, if Satan had his way, every one of us would be in this kind of difficulty. Understand that. You, the verse you're going to want to hang on to is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God will not test you above that you are able to bear. Boy, that's a precious verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Dr. Francis Schaeffer said that the first argument of the gospel is not that Jesus died for your sins. Nor is it that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. The first argument of the gospel is God is there. That he, there is a God and he is in control. That's the first statement. The rest derives from that. And that's really what Job is about. And we made it all the way through chapter 1. So we'll try chapter 2. Pace is picking up. Huh? Job 1, first round. But there's a second round coming up. Job chapter 2, verse 1. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. It's called round two, okay? God was vindicated in his evaluation of Job. See, Satan's law, he's blown it. 
Now, we're given a viewpoint here that Job didn't have. Job didn't know anything about Satan doing this. I don't think. There's no reason for it. We're getting an insight that Job was not permitted to have. Verse 2. So the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan asked the Lord, Well, uh, from going uh, to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. What we don't get in the English, in those responses to the Lord, there's no real deference that should be there. So even though he has access, he's sort of an intruder. Lord said unto Satan, uh, Oh, excuse me, uh, Verse 3, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, and one that feareth God, and that sheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Without cause. See, there again, I want you to understand, Job's vindicated. This is a rebuttal to the self-interest premise of Satan. Verse 4, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath, he will give for his life. Skin for skin is a proverbial saying having to do with bartering for animal skins. But I think you get the idea. Satan continues, but put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. See, Satan's asking for a change of the rules. You can let me do everything but touch him. Let me touch him, then I'll show you. Flesh and bone, interesting expression. Of course, what's here is a total, our total humanity, our emotional as well as our physical being. It's interesting that Jesus, after his resurrection, when he appeared with his disciples, and they thought he was a ghost, he said, no, handle me and see. A spirit has not flesh and bone, right? He didn't say flesh and blood. That's our phrase. That's not his phrase. He shed his blood. But the phrase for his humanity, his, resurrection, his, his, his tangibility, his, his reality, was flesh and bone. Same phrase as here, flesh and bone. Now, Job's problem was he could not see behind the scenes. We can hear, but we don't in our own lives. See, when you have adversity, those problems that bother you on the way here and the will tomorrow morning, and whether it's cash flow or medical or emotional or marital or children, or you, you, we could make a list. And we could probably make, I think, with a few good guesses, get 99% of them, right? When you face those trials... You're in the same position Job is in, in that you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You have to trust, just like Job did. You and I can read this and have the benefit of these glimpses and say, ah, see, there's Satan doing this and that. Job could at best infer it or guess it, like you and I will, because we won't know either. Why did God cause that to happen this way? But gee, I thought, but then... You know, who? Verse 6, the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. See, again, God draws the line. You do what you like, but you can't kill him. What would Satan have done if he could? Waste the guy. Well, he comes close. Verse 7, So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And verse 8, so he took with him a potsherd to scrape himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes. Now, that doesn't communicate the whole thing. He was stuck out on the city dump because he could no longer go in the city. You have to put together the rest of the book to understand. You want, you want to take a look at his chart? Shall I give you a rundown of what? The, the scholars are arguing whether it's leprosy or elephantiasis, which 
It's probably neither. It's probably a bunch of other words I can't pronounce properly. So I won't bore you with that because we're guessing anyway. The sore boils phrase relates similar to the plagues in Egypt in Exodus 9 and Deuteronomy 28:27, similar to Hezekiah's illness in 2 Kings 20. But rather than get through that, let's just go through the other verses in the book of Job to get some glimpse as to what this guy was up against. He had inflamed ulcerous sores. We got that in verse 7. He had itching, we find in verse 8. He had degenerative changes in his facial skin, we'll discover, uh, in um, seven, chapter 7. Loss of appetite in chapter 3, depression, nightmares. He had worms in his boils in chapter 7, verse 5. He had hardened skin and running sores in chapter 7. He had difficulty in breathing, chapter 9, 18. He had dark eyelids and failing vision in chapter 16, verse 16. He had putrid breath in chapter 19, 17, rotting teeth in chapter 19, loss of weight and anorexia in chapter 19, verse 30, in chapter 33. He was in continual pain in chapter 30. He had restlessness. I could understand that. Um, <laughs> he had peeling blackened skin in chapter 30, and he had fever, and all this lasted for at least several months. Okay. Tough stuff. Now, this happens to be this list. Tough stuff. You have your list. It may not be quite as bad as this, and yet it's your list. I found out many years ago what the definition of a minor operation is. That's an operation on somebody else. Right? Right? Okay. Now, it's neat when a guy's in trouble to have his wife rally to the cause. Okay? <laughs> chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thy integrity? Curse God and die. <laughs> I mean, she's had it. Give up, she's saying. By the way, it doesn't say curse God, it's bless God, but it's so sarcastically structured that the translators put it just the opposite. In their reality. They, get, they really get the spirit of the word by reversing it. But uh, curse God and die. Girls, your husbands draw more emotional support from you than either they or you probably realize. And you just need to know that. Notice what he does, though. He says, right on, gal. No, no. He says, verse, verse 10. He said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this... Job did not sin with his lips. You notice he does not call her a foolish woman. He accuses her as speaking as one of the foolish women. Even all this, he's tactful. I would have called her a lot worse, but that's... Uh... Okay, Job, uh, Job did not sin. The score is now 2-0 to zero in favor of Job and God. Now, what's Satan do now? Now he moves in with a heavy artillery. This was just a preamble. Game. What he's after is the spirit of Job, his, the ultimate reality in his life. And how does he attack Job? With three friends. And as I quip, you know, with friends like these, you don't need many enemies. Okay, we'll go to verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. 
for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. What's interesting about this, they came from different parts, different regions. They apparently all knew each other. They're all friends. They're all apparently very prominent people. They, they apparently are sincere friends. These are not, uh, we're, we're going to, you know, <laughs> have some cracks at their expense probably, but you need to really understand that these are sincere, although maybe misguided, they're sincere friends. And sincerity ain't enough in, terms, in the spiritual sense. But they came from different regions, which means there's some. Uh, Job is enduring this for quite a while because communication takes place. These guys not only come together, but they make an, arra- an appointment to come together to comfort and guide uh, and mourn uh, for Job. This is the heavy artillery Satan's going to use. They will be unknowingly his instruments because they're going to attach. They're going to attempt to attack the spiritual relationship with God, whether they realize it or not. Now Eliphaz is an Edomite name. Genesis thirty-six four. Uh, uh, Eliphaz the Temanite was from Tema in Arabia or possibly Teman in, in Edom either way Jeremiah 49.7 uh, Obadiah 8 are references Bildad the Shuhite was from Shua and uh, I got in an argument with Doug Wetmore about the shortest man in the Bible I thought it was Nehemiah <laughs> but, but D- Doug pointed out to me no it was Bildad the Shuhite Now, if you've ever wondered what the head of the Firefighters for Christ does in his spare time, they trade these kinds of stories. Uh, Bildad the Shuhite was from Shua. It's a location named after Abraham's youngest son. See, again, this implies the patriarchal period. Genesis 25.2. So far, we don't have a lot of background on. Uh, the, the, there is a translation issue. May make it this, he, he, may, uh, from a, he may be from uh, a... a um, the same as Balak's father, if you remember Balak in Numbers 22, uh, 224, the, the, the guy that Balaam uh, prostituted himself to. Um, Nehemiah, possibly a Judean town, if you look at Joshua 15:41. but those are all speculations. We're not sure exactly where these guys came from, but they're obviously leaders. A fourth guy is going to show up in chapter 32 that's not one of these three friends, but turns out to be a, a key player in the narrative, a guy by the name of Elihu, son of Brachel the Buzzite, may have been from Buzz, the name of Abram's nephew. Buzz is mentioned along with Dedan and Tima. In, uh, the, these are Arabian locations in Jeremiah 25. So we, these, these whole cast of characters seem to be uh, in or near Arabia or Edom. That's the, the area we're talking about. Anyway, moving on. Verse 12. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they didn't recognize Job. It's no wonder. They lifted up their voice and wept. And they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads towards heaven. These guys care. These aren't cynics sitting on the sidelines. They care about Job. They've traveled a long way to come and mourn and comfort him. We may be critical of some of their comments, but let's recognize that they're the kinds of friends that will come out of the woodwork for you and I. And when you're in trouble, there are friends that will comfort you, pray with you, and do wonderful things. And there's also them that may uh, be the source of of, of, uh, uh, divergent insights, if you will. And uh, one of the the things, and we've been going through some uh, very, very difficult times, and it's fascinating to me, because we have the privilege of a lot of visibility in the Christian community and have a lot of friends trying to rally to help us. And is it fascinating to see the divergence 
of approach. Um, people who really aren't in a position to help do. And people who have enormous resources to help don't, don't have time. People you may, know, you may have known for 20 years. It's interesting. To, um, probably should write a book when it's over. Hmm. No, I better not. Um, anyway, verse 12. When they lift up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they, they didn't recognize him. They lift up their voice and they wept. They rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads. They expressed their grief four ways. They wailed, that's emotional shock. They wept, that is in sorrow. They tore their robes, that's uh, in brokenheartedness. Typical Eastern expression. And they threw dust over their heads to the sky in deep grief and in recognition of their helplessness. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights. And none spake a word unto him. For they saw that his grief was very great. So Job may have taken it correctly in not accusing God. But he wasn't just rolling with it. He was in grief. It's understandable. Now, these guys... Um, Say nothing for seven days. Now, that you, what you may not realize, that's the usual time for mourning in a funeral service. Uh, for the dead seven days. That's in Genesis uh, 50, verse 10, 1 Samuel 31, 13, and Ezekiel 3, 15. Ezekiel has a similar experience, kind of thing, where seven days tends to be a period of, of mourning. And uh, now, uh, tough stuff. What, as, we go, what, as we go forward... We're going to uh, be talking, uh, uh, hearing uh, these arguments of these guys. And what you're going to be, want to be alert for is your own views will surface in the dialogues between Job and these three guys. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be tough stuff. We might remind ourselves of uh, other people who went through these kinds of trials. Uh, do you remember where there was a man that was born blind? Who, the, the disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was blind? And Jesus said, neither, but that the glory of God might be revealed. See, don't link adversity with sin. That's part of what we're dealing with here, and that's, that's going to be the main theme that emerges out of these three friends. It seems that everyone that God prepares, uh, everyone that God uses in a major role, he prepares through some trial. Remember Moses and Midian? You know, he was 40 when he left Egypt. And, and, and uh, you know, he, he's, uh, how long did he hang around Midian? 40 years. That's a long time to be on the penalty box. Um, Yvonne DiCarlo or no, that's still a long time. <laughs> David in his hideout, when he's fleeing Saul, he went through a lot of trials. And one of the byproducts out of these beautiful Psalms. You understand David? Read the Psalms. Jeremiah. Joseph, in the pit. Both spent some time in the pit. Daniel in the lion's den, and so forth. I start to say Paul in prison. You have to say, which one? <laughs> and, of course, Job in the city dump. All the heroes of Hebrews 11. You know, we, go, we talk about the Hall of Faith, the famous chapter in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11. That whole list, you go through that list, they're all sufferers. All sufferers. Who's the one that suffered most? Jesus Christ. 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53.3, that was his destiny, that was his mission. You talk about the innocent suffering. It isn't Job. It's your Lord and mine, Jesus Christ. Innocent? You bet. How do we know? Gee, if nothing else, Satan said so. Through, through Judy says, Behold, I have betrayed innocent blood, he announced to the, the priests. Right on, guy. Innocent. And he calls our attention to his wailing through by quoting the beginning and ending of Psalm 22 as his first and last words from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a strange thing for the Son of God to say. Suffer, you bet. God turned his back on him because he turned his back on He was made sin for us, for you and I. As we study the book of Job, we'll talk about the innocent suffering, but let's not lose sight of the innocent one who did the suffering, ultimate, for both in both directions, for you and I. Okay. Um, chapter 3 opens a section, a, poet, a, a, a poetic discourse, uh, between the... Uh, uh, Job and his three friends. And um, we'll try to find a way to move right through it so we don't get bogged down in the rhetoric on the one hand and on the other hand get the essential points. But we're going to have several cycles of dialogues between these three friends and Job. And Zophar sort of falls out of the running near the end. Um, but anyway, uh, Job does his best to respond. The great mystery that will occur as we go, as we get into this, um, well, first of all, we're going to encounter some of the most majestic portions of Scripture. And I'm just going to peek ahead, since i got a few minutes, I'll peek ahead to chapter 19. One of my first memory verses as a kid blew me away when I saw this in the book of Job, because even then I, I'd heard that Job was the oldest book in the Bible. And I was fascinated when I got to uh, Job 19, Verse 25, 26, and 27. Now, those of you that have an RSV, you have my sympathy because they totally screwed this up. But those of you that have, have good scholarly uh, translations, grab verses 25, 26, and 27. For I, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth. This is Old Testament. This is the oldest book of the Bible. Adam Seth, Enoch, Abraham, they knew far more about the gospel than you and I give them credit for. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. Really? Isn't that interesting? There are Christians today that don't believe that. There are characters running around with fancy you know, theological names behind them that don't understand that Jesus Christ is literally going to stand upon the earth. On the earth, in his flesh. And, and, and Job goes on. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Yet in my flesh I shall see God. He's talking about a resurrection body, gang, right here. You have to go to First Corinthians 15. It's right here in Job 19. And Job goes on. Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my heart be consumed within me. Interesting. Pretty neat guy, Job. And at the final, I won't dig it out now, finally, 
Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Boy, that's, that's, as, that's as good as it gets, gang. As good as it gets. Now, we'll, uh, we'll uh, obviously continue next Monday. Um, we're going to, t- as we go along, we are going to pull into our, our horizon here some of the scientific advances that the book of Job anticipates. There are insights in the book of Job about the stars, the heavens, the earth, the, the, the creation that are amazing, just amazing. There's at least 15 specific discoveries by science that the book of Job has anticipated. More than any other book of the Bible. There are more comments about the creation, God's creation, than any other book of the Bible. In fact, uh, God himself really focuses on that when it's his turn to <laughs> uh, set it all straight. The flip side of that's interesting. There are no errors. What's fascinating to do is to pull from the old records of Egypt and elsewhere their views about the earth, water, fire, all those kinds of things, and they are humorous. They are amazing. And we can smile at their naivete or their, their absence of understanding. But what's really amazing is that none of that gets in the Bible especially in the Torah, the five books of Moses, because Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. You really need to read about the Egyptians to understand what he got, what he got taught when he went to school. And yet none of that occurs in the Torah. In contrast to that, there are all kinds of things, and I won't take the time now to go through it all, but amazing anticipations of modern health, modern medicine, modern science that are in the Torah. Amazing stuff. And uh, and yet uh, uh, it comes, you know, the Bible comes through unscathed. How can that be? Was Job so smart, or was Moses so smart? No, that's not the issue. The issue is that uh, the Holy Spirit has engineered this thing. What's interesting to me, and you know, you've heard me many times, but I'll just put it on record again. I believe every word, every place name, every detail in the original, every number is there by design. Is there for a spiritual purpose, and uh, so it doesn't. It's not surprising at all. It's very interesting, very gratifying to discover these things, but not surprising. This is this is God's word. We talked about the names of God. We went through that whole thing, right? It's interesting that as jealous as God is about His own name, and He's very jealous of His name. Read the Ten Suggestions sometime. Um, there's one thing He puts above His name. There's one thing he puts higher than his name, his word, and you have it in your laps. And uh, Job is going to be a very, very exciting part of that. Probably the high point of the majesty of God will will, uh, make itself visible in the book of Job. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. And let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we just are awed at your grandeur, your magnificence. We just thank you, Father, for giving us this opportunity to learn of you. And, Father, we are grateful that you are in control. We are thankful, Father, for the realization that there's nothing that can come into our lives that you haven't permitted, haven't allowed for our own welfare. Father, we just thank you for the revelation of yourself. We thank you, Father, that you've given us opportunities 
to behold you without the price that Job had to pay. And yet, Father, we also recognize that as you mold and shape us for that purpose you have in our lives, Father, we just pray that the lessons not be wasted. We pray, Father, that you would just indeed go before us, walk with us. And Father, we just thank you that we also have Jesus Christ, his power, his protection, and his standing before you as we plead his shed blood on our behalf. Father, we would ask you as we go forward that you would just fill us with your spirit, increase in us an appetite for the bread of life, that you would just show us and teach us and lead us, help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of you. But we ask all these things in accordance with our Redeemer, who will indeed stand at that latter day upon the earth.